0: Hello, welcome to relatable this is your host Teresa Freeman we always talk about how social media can be worrisome yet in some cases it can connect us in a way that would never have happened before in this episode we talked to Joanna Wang the Taiwanese American singer songwriter and pop star I had the unique opportunity to talk to Joanna because she used to follow my husband's blog corporate Joe they became virtual friends about 10 or 15 years ago Recently, Joanna graciously offered to talk with me on Relatable. Joanna provides an inside view into a career as a global pop star. We discuss the pressure to sing crowd-pleasing commercial music and how it's been important for her to create music that feels authentic. We also get an insider scoop on performing, how musical artists get paid, and how much she enjoyed putting together this most recent album, Love Is Calling Me. I appreciate how honest and open and vulnerable Joanna was throughout our conversation, and I think you will too. Enjoy this episode. So you just finished an album. It's funny, I was looking at um, trying to get to know a little bit more about you. And we don't know if we've talked about this yet, but you're my first, I think, recording artist. Like I've had comedians on here and I've had some actors on here and I've had like definitely sort of an entertainment industry. Like we've got a good cross section of people, but I think you're my first, right, Missy? Our first celebrity vocalist. So, maybe just tell me a little bit about just because I like to start more recently and then we kind of work our way back and then work our way forward again. But tell me a little bit about your what you just finished recording because you just put you just finished a new album, right?
1: In the May of 2019, I was in Portland, Oregon, recording this album that is a collection of hits of Asia from the 60s to the 80s. And actually, one of the singers that I I covered a lot in that album, her name is Teresa Also, (laughs) Oh! Yeah. Teresa Tang, and she she was kind of like this Pan-Asia legend. She had like a really beautiful, sweet, melodic, and very emotive voice. And her image was like very pristine, sweet, female, you know, which was, I think, of, of that era. Like a lot of idols, she was very popular in Japan. Okay, she was born in Taiwan, but she became immensely popular in Japan. Japanese pop culture at that time was kind of like leading everyone almost in in Asia at that time. And so she had a lot of hits in Japan, and and I, I, yeah, I covered a lot of those, a lot of her big hits, in, like from Japan, but in both Japanese and Mandarin. Wow. Yeah.
0: And how long does something like that take to pull together and to work on? And just even from concept, like your, right? Is that is that a year long process, two years? How long does it take? I guess because it was a cover
1: project, all the songs were pre-existing songs. So it's not like we had to write new ones. Mm-hmm. So it was more like my label had talked to me about making a cover record kind of like my process with them is they'll release an original record which they don't like as much because it makes less Mm. (laughs) it just like makes less of a splash in the market and it has less it gets me less gigs basically
0: Uh. because it's,
1: it's not as commercial and then so they'll ask me to make a cover record because it is a better chance of it being more marketable and there's just more listeners when I do Kind of cover songs right so at that time i felt really inspired in making a record that sounded like the vinyl that you would find at a record store like a weird 70s vinyl yeah that was kind of inspiration and i thought why why not combine the two ideas which is cover these hit songs into kind of it would sound like a 70s strange world music record (laughs) that was kind of the approach and then I got in touch with, he's a really well-respected, how should I say this? I respect him a lot. Um, <laughs> he's like this uh, keyboardist musician in uh, LA. Uh, his name is Roger Joseph Manning Jr. We've worked together on it a lot. At, at first I asked him just if he, rec- if he could recommend me a producer who had the sensibility of being able to take these kind of Asian ballad hits and then translate them into an old vinyl record type of vibe so yeah he introduced me to this this guitarist named Chris Funk who Hmm. is the guitarist of the the American band the Decemberists I think some people will might know them yeah and yeah the Decemberists and then I thought he was really amazing because as I was sending him kind of like the sonic references I think he really understood very quickly and imagined what that soundscape
0: would be like so it was really easy to work with him and is this all like cross continental like in terms of working together this
1: is just emailing and oh no but well no the the pre-production part was just yeah. online okay and then i went to port this was like 2019 so it was pre-pandemic yeah and you could still very freely travel <laughs> so i went to portland once in april to do the pre-production like we spent some time recording like the basic demos, getting the basic song structures down. And then he found a, a great, very fantastic arranger named Ra- Ryan Francis Coney. And I, I know that he's worked with Joanna Newsom, which is also, who's also an extraordinary artist. She's a like a harp playing singer song. Sure. So he had Ryan do all the arrangements based on the demos that we did. And then, so in May, after all the arrangements were completed, I flew over to Portland again and we recorded the album. That was the process, which took about a month, the actual recording itself. So I would say from kind of just the conception of the concept into mastering, which is like the final stage Mm -hmm. of the album making process, it took about six months. Wow. That's amazing. the actual pre-production, like the actual demo making, and then the re- and then the arranging and the recording took about two months. So it actually was it
0: was okay. It wasn't like a very long birthing process. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned vinyl. Like vinyl, I don't know if I'm. I feel like vinyl's making this comeback. Uh, you know, people. I feel sure. like it's it's just. Sure. It's coming up a lot in conversation and you're hearing about it more just in and talk shows. And, you know, you just hear poor people talking about their vinyl collection. I think back to yeah. like I'm a product of the 70s. Right. And uh, we had vinyl. We were a big music family. And, you know, I think about all these albums that we had that I, you know, we gave. it's like we all got rid of our albums and like went digital. And now I'm like, oh, I wish I had some of those back because it's, it's making this come back now. Yeah.
1: But I think, well, probably some of the rarer collectibles would be quite hard to get your hands on. But I I feel like if you go to like a secondhand store... You
0: could find them. Yeah.
1: They're very plenty and plentiful and very, very cheap.
0: (laughs) Okay, good. And you... Did you grow up in the US? Did I read that right? did. You did?
1: Yeah. So I, I was born in Taiwan. I was born in Taipei. And then I moved to the US when I was about eight years old. I think it was like my eighth birthday when oh. I flew. Cause I remember like I had a birthday in Taiwan and when I arrived, I had another birthday. <laughs> but that's was, the like, way to do
0: birthday.
1: it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it was like, uh, I had, I think like my, my whole family moved there. Yeah, they moved there like two years before me. And then I, I stayed in Taiwan with my grandmother I think the reason for that was my mom wanted me to study in Taiwan for two years more so I could get my basics of Chinese. Mm. Because she just felt like it would be easier to develop a foundation in Chinese younger rather than later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you learn languages faster when you're younger.
0: Right, right.
1: So yeah, I think when I did get to the US, it was definitely, like the first few years were pretty rough. You know, just not speaking the language and trying to fit in. Like I went to ESL, but I think definitely you would still feel just the difference of how you can't play with all the other kids because Mm. it's awkward. It's awkward not being able to speak the language.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I mean that's eight is young, but not so young you don't remember it. Like I, I remember being eight, so that's like pretty pivotal time. Do you have siblings or or? I have two younger sisters. Okay. And then, so when you came here, did you, um, how long did it take, not here, here, but to this, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm on the East Coast, but on the you were on the West Coast, right? So how long did it take for you to assimilate or for that to start to feel a little bit more normal?
1: Luckily, I made some friends in the fifth grade and I think that helped me, like I, I mean some really close friends in the fifth grade and I think that really helped me get a glimpse of like oh, what the kids are like here. Mm. What do they they joke about? What do they watch? Um, What do they listen to? I mean, we still have really different interests, but I think they really, they they were like a group of, they were all related to each other. Like my two best friends were cousins and they just had like the most scathing humor for like 10 year olds. And and I think I really, um, it it was very formative. Uh. Yeah, I think that that was like my first kind of like big exposure to this culture. But I would say they were kind of like outliers. They were yeah. not like the other kids. They were like way too mature for their age and way too cynical. And like,
0: oh my gosh. But yeah. This is why you find my husband so humorous.
1: <laughs> I think, yeah, actually, my friend. Yeah. Who found. The corporate Joe blog. She is also she's the queen of cynicism. She is so cynical sometimes
0: that it's it's hard to be around. You yeah. have it, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So was music something that was always a part of your life? You know, tell me a little bit about how that really became something you wanted to pursue because that's it's a tough business. So I'm curious the evolution of that.
1: I guess just from the beginning, I've always loved loved listening to music and i loved the way that the feelings that it would evoke in me you know like especially excitement like it would really make me feel just like this excitement that is euphoric and it's like not I, I couldn't really find anything else that could give me the same emotion so it always had a really special place in my heart and i felt like if i could also make something that could give me or other people that same feeling seemed quite special, you know, mm. that was like a special goal. My father uh, is a music producer in Taiwan, but toward my teens, we weren't living together anymore because he was working a lot in Taiwan. So I guess he would see his kids like a few, a few times a year. Mm-hmm. And I think he wasn't, he just wasn't sure of at what stage of growth they're at because he wasn't, he wasn't there all the time. And so. I had picked up the guitar. He knew that I picked up the guitar, but I just, I didn't, because I was a very prideful and sensitive kid. So I never really played it in front of him because he's a musician and he really likes to tell me what I'm doing wrong. So I would just play in secret. And then for like the next two years, I would just, I, I think he just because I, I really love Paul McCartney. I, I absolutely adore, like I wa- I wanted to, I was just in love with him. And so he's a left-handed guitarist and and I wanted to be a left-handed guitarist also. And I remember I was like just starting to play and kind of figuring out how to hold chords down. And then my dad, who's very blunt, he was just like, you don't have strength in your fingers. You should just try playing right-handed. It really injured, you know, the pride yeah. of a 12-year-old. Yeah. I was just like, what's the word? Devastated? Well, devastated and also it was it was more like, Like uh, like, that, i would ever play in front of you (laughs) like or i'll just not play i'll just give up but right um but secretly and i'm like practicing at night
0: like prove him wrong kind of a thing
1: kind of yeah Yeah. and then so he was in taiwan like most of the times and then i remember when i was like 15 my dad had given me these these were like never in style but they're called mini disc players md players Mm -hmm. they were like popular just for like a really brief amount of time and yeah. then I started playing around with just just recording whatever like covers or compositions and then I showed it to my dad and I think he was really he was really surprised because he just didn't know what 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 I was doing I thought I wasn't playing maybe and then my dad brought up like if I wanted to record a demo in a, in a real studio and that was amazing because growing up I always Watched him work in the studio. Yeah. I always loved it. I just love the process. I love being in the studio. I love being able to hear the process of their actually making something step by step, and you can hear it come out of the speakers. And, you know, to be able to record, because I've seen everyone else record, but I've, you know, never done it myself. And to know that I could do it too it was like, yes, uh, that would be amazing, of course. And how old are you at this point? At this point, I was. 15. okay and then we recorded it was like a guitar and vocal really really simple demo and then we recorded some like other demos like here and there and then he showed it to his colleagues i guess basically not even like a colleagues in the same company but i guess like his friends who are also in the music business in taiwan that was what got me started then you know some people were interested when i was 16 i dropped out of high school to go back to Taiwan, so I could start my foray into the music world. And then when I was seventeen, I signed with Sony Music Taiwan, who I'm still I'm still with. So I've been with them for fifteen years.
0: Wow! Can I ask a question about just leaving high school and and leaving the U.S.? Like, were you? uh, I mean, it's such an exciting thing to
1: yeah. For a teenager, that's kind of like a dream come true, (laughs) right? And
0: I there's this saying that that I've heard, you know, in terms of leaving or quitting something, like if you're running towards something, that's one Mm -hmm. thing versus like running away from something, right? So it seems like in this scenario, it's obviously it's been part of your family and you've seen it and observed it and you want to be part of it. And then you have this opportunity. I'm curious, was there any hesitation, any nervousness to leave the US? Did you have to leave family um, behind in order to go to Taiwan?
1: At that time, it was like my, my mom and my sisters, they stayed beso- behind, but, but they went to Taiwan like every summer. Okay. So it wasn't like this forever goodbye. Right. My, my dad is co- traveling constantly between Taiwan and the U.S. I think for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. There was not even yeah. kind of any emotional resistance. Yeah. I think it was just, this is the life of adventure I've been waiting for. And bring it on. But... I think once, kind of like fast forward to after I signed the record contract, it became increasingly, well, I think one thing was, you know, everyone kept saying like, I think there were like different people like giving my dad advice, which is like, don't make her wait because the younger you put them out, the better, you know, like that's, it's like good promotion or it's, it's a good, um, promotional edge when they're so young, you know. It's like seventeen is just not the same as nineteen. You don't want to wait, and I think you know there was like definitely this pressure was. I think on my dad, I think he just wanted it to be maybe that's what he felt like would be the you know the best for my career path. And the same thing with my company also. They they wanted to put something out, but I think actually I was. Hoping to kind of just explore my writing or just like just my sound. Like it was like I, I felt like I kind of missed out on. Just like there's like this beginning growth that I felt like I missed out on because it was like I, I immediately had to start recording. Like I think I started to feel a lot of dread mm-hmm. because they wanted me to be a certain kind of singer with a certain kind of image, with a certain kind of backstory it made me really uncomfortable actually that it was like in order to be loved in order to be liked you had to be this complete person who is not you right it was like you know they have the A&R department uh-huh. and well there's like several departments but yeah. you know there's the, the music department and then they actually sometimes they start with the A&R department and so the a and they would pick like, "Mm, I think this artist could, she needs to have like a metropolitan feel or she needs to appeal to the 30 to 35 demographic because of the tone of her voice. So she'll be dressed up like this with her hair like this and her song selections will be like this. Mm -hmm. I think if you're okay with it, if your heart is open to that, then I think it's something you can work with. But for me at the time, being like 17, 18, I was really resistant. And I was very depressed because Mm. this was not what I wanted. And then I I remember like not singing the songs that they wanted me to sing for some time. But I think from what I understood, it was like, you know, the higher ups at the label or people in the label would kind of start, you know, because if you're a new artist, you... You don't really have a voice, right? I'm guessing. Yeah, not only do you have a voice, I feel like, people talk about you if you're not obedient. Like, oh, like, who does uh, she think she
0: is? Right. You know.
1: Who, and I think maybe they made my dad feel like they've raised a really spoiled child
0: hmm. because
1: I'm not cooperative. And, you know, oh my God, you have a record contract. How could you not be cooperative? And so I, I could feel my dad pressuring me also. Like, yeah. why won't you sing the songs? You know, you have to understand that this kind of relationship, it's like, if they're paying for your product or they're paying for your career, you have to cooperate with them. And it was just like this really awkward situation where it's just like, I clearly feel really resistant. I, I don't like that. If I say yes, then the future of my life will be changed in a direction that I, I can kind of already see what's happening and I don't like it. I really don't want to do this. But then it's like a standstill. If I don't say yes, I mean, I'm getting older and then I don't really have, like, I'm still feeling out kind of what I want to do. Right.
0: Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information.
1: And then I got called, they called me into a meeting. And then the the boss at the time, who he was very, I think the word is schmaltzy. <laughs> I, I think
0: that's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was like,
1: well, if you just try it out, you know, just, just, of course, we're very open to how you feel and what you want. Just try it out. Like sing the songs. And if you don't like it, we won't do them. As if he really, you know, illustrated it as if I was given a choice. Mm-hmm. And actually, I I aim to please. I don't I don't want everyone to be so upset because of a choice I made. You know, I clearly want no one to be upset. And I was like, okay, all right, I'll I'll do it. This was after a few months of like, can we not? And then so yeah, I was like, I went into the studio and I kind of recorded the more ballady songs that they wanted me to do. And it was like it, it got weird because it just the recording appointments just never stopped. It just kind of continued and then it was like this weird blurry thing was just like so there's really no choice it was just like they just got me in the studio and right i was really depressed hmm. it was like every every day going to the studio i don't know i just had i think i'm a naturally anxious person also but it just kind of felt like spelling out my own doom by showing up every day
0: well what a strange but thing to have this opportunity and be excited about it and to be right. like this is kind of my soul and what i meant to do and yet the way in which you're being asked to do it feels inauthentic and you're you're at this crossroads. And so that seems such like a, unfortunately, like a common story. It's like you have to kind of sell your soul in order to do the thing that you love and all these other people have control and you don't.
1: It almost felt like, I would say it feels like societal values Mm -hmm. would tell, don't bite the hand that feeds you, Right, you should be grateful. You should be grateful for this opportunity. People would love to be in your shoes. So I think a lot of the impression that I got from outside people, especially more senior people in the industry, the impression that I had was like, I'm very spoiled. Mm-hmm. That's actually something like to this day, I, it's like a cri- critical voice that I, I hear, you know, like, oh my God, like, if I make these choices, who's going to say that I'm spoiled because you know, I don't cherish my opportunities. Or
0: did your dad know that you were struggling, and did he know you were depressed? And what—that's also kind of an uncomfortable dynamic. I would
1: say it, it's only maybe like a few years down the road where we kind of like repaired our mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. And definitely, I was—I was very angry with him. Yeah, you know, like why didn't you care about how I feel? You just care about how they feel. You know, it, it was pretty emotionally. I was very volatile with my dad at the time but you know it's like (laughs) I know what he's like and I and I know he really like cares for his family and he's just trying to do his best but I think my life just changed like too much too fast and out of my control it was completely not like maybe the romances I had for my future you know right right and that made me really angry I kind of felt like like very quickly my possibilities were taken away Mm-hmm. definitely like I was a very angry i in my early 20s I was just extremely angry at the world but after that whole process you know it, it didn't just stop at the music it continued with like the styling and the music videos
0: and did you feel like a puppet
1: I did I I mean I didn't think of the word puppet at the time I just felt it it, it did not feel good to yeah. have no voice and if you did you were spoiled you know
0: yeah yeah how did you work your way out of that
1: so the the first album it it actually became commercially very viable. Mm -hmm. So they wanted me to do a second one. But during the second one, I was, I just wanted to do something more, something different. But I still had, I wanted to do something original. I just really wish I could explore and realize song ideas or songs. But I did record an album that the label did not like. And so they wanted me to record more songs that were or pop or just what they considered was more commercially viable for me so i did covers because i kind of had an aversion to doing original ballads as in like ballads that were not previously existing by anyone and songs that i i didn't write because i think when you when you sing a new ballad you become the spokesperson for that ballad but if you sing a cover song you don't have to be like the soul spokesperson for this. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think I was just trying to avoid going down the path where there are fans would be like, "Oh, you sing that song? This song means so much to me and I know you represent that song. You as a person, you represent the essence of the song and I think I couldn't take that anymore. It was like people saying, "I love you because you're this." And then I know that I'm not this. And right. I know there's probably like maybe like a more mature way to frame this that the way, the way it works for some people. Right. But the way I think just how i frame it i was like this is not the relationship i want with people who listen this is not how i want to connect and i felt that on a very strong level yeah i was just trying to avoid seeing like new new ballads so it ended up actually i felt like looking back it was kind of a hodgepodge of stuff because we just recorded a bunch of different things and then like the original album that was recorded it kind of ended up being like a bonus disc Mm. and i just I kind of felt like I was being pushed kind right mm-hmm. of to a, to a corner.
0: A question about when they sign you, just because, you know, in case someone's listening and they're interested in pursuing this as a profession and don't know as much about the industry, if they sign you and there's some contractual period to that, I'm guessing like there's some time period in which they're saying, hey, you're going to work with us primarily for this period of time. Like those of us in in sort of professional regular world jobs, (laughs) there's like a salary that someone gets for a year, right? And that's kind of how they operate. So I'm curious with this kind of situation, how much of it is variable in that it's how the music does and how the music performs and how much of it is, we're going to kind of give you this lump sum to start with, or is it Signing you is just signing you, and then you're creating the music. Is there some equation? I,
1: I think it can go in many different types of ways. But okay. from my experiences, what I understand is there is no base salary. My process is that I have just like a record contract and a management contract. Mm-hmm. And then management contract is kind of like the gigs that you get outside of making an album. And then the kind of like income you get from that you split with your company. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that depends on how it's negotiated. If you have, if you have leverage, if you have leverage, then you can get better numbers Mm -hmm. as in, you know, when you're splitting, you, you don't, maybe you don't have to give so much to them. Right. But leverage comes with, unfortunately it, you don't, you don't have leverage right off the bat if you're a new artist. So I think it it takes a long time. Or, you know, unless you like explode with popularity, then you have a lot of leverage because then there'll be competitors who want to work with you. And so you can, you know, massage your conditions a little better. And then the record contract is you can sign contracts that give you a lump sum of an advance, an advance for you to make the record. But this all this they will recuperate it from sales or however else you make money for them. Right. I would say I feel very lucky in that this always has worked out. And I'm I feel like I'm able to work on something every one or two years, like a like an album project.
0: I was gonna ask just about the performing aspect of it too. Do you lo- do you love to perform? Like in, and when you talk about the gigs, is that part fun for you? Or you mentioned being kind of anxious. Is that scary? Like, how do you feel about that part?
1: definitely makes me feel anxious because going down this path, I've, you know, I've, I've tried to get more and more space or freedom to do something that I feel is just something I enjoy more like music. I maybe just feel more, you know, excited to work on, or that brings me more joy. And the audience has a very mixed reception when it comes to that. But I don't think this is unique to my situation. I think a lot of artists, you know, maybe they release their first album or second album that people really love and then they do their third and their fourth that people really hate. And so when they perform, people just want to hear the stuff that they love. And if you play the stuff they hate, they'll, they'll shout stuff, you know, they'll yell stuff or they'll express their discontent. Um, So that makes me anxious when I play, like the process of like, so after I did my second album, I was just like, I told my company that I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go back to the U.S. for school because you can't stop me if if I need to continue my studies, like just for a year. I think at the time that was when the albums were or, or the first album was still doing well. So I don't think they wanted me to leave or stop right? I don't know. I was just like, I I need to get away. I don't know. I I decided to go back to community college back at home Mm -hmm. just so I could take a break from all this. My manager at the label at the time was like, oh, you know, actually the company wants you to come back. But I said, is it possible that they'll let me make a record of my own? Those are the conditions which I come back. And the manager kind of negotiated with them. So it was just like, okay, if you if you do a cover record for, or if you do a commercial album for us, then you can do uh, whatever you want, one of yours on your own. Right. And then and then that kind of started, that was like, kind of like the format. Once that got started, that was the format for like the next five, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. So that was how I was able to start making my own stuff. And I feel like I have more and more, a lot more freedom. So yeah, like, I feel like I'm, I'm able to kind of realize a lot of the things that I wanted to do. It's been a journey.
0: And what, yeah, I was going to say, once you were in that spot where you were actually connecting in the way that you wanted and you were creating the way that you wanted to, did that feel very different and much more fulfilling and connected it, it, to this idea when you first thought you that's what you were running toward, right? Is it like that's like- Right, oh, they,
1: exactly. I really felt like it was miraculous. I felt so grateful that this part that I thought I could- I thought this time like passed me by or Uh these opportunities passed me by like permanently. I don't know. Maybe when you're younger, you just don't see that the world could be so big and actually so many things are possible and you're not as alone as you may think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there will be people who support you also. There'll be people who are against you, but there will be people who support you. Right. And I really feel truly like blessed that on this path, I met so many friends who are like-minded, who maybe felt that passion on like a similar degree. And I I felt like I made a lot of music that I really, I felt like it reflected that whatever that initial, you know, that goal that I, yeah, that I hoped for.
0: Can you talk just a little bit about how your music, or if your music, translates globally? Like when you put out a record or an album. You, you live in Taiwan now, right? Mostly, or do you do you still? Have any time that you spend in the U.S. or are you mostly there? And
1: I go to the U.S. when I'm recording stuff. Mm-hmm. Not everything, but they, you know, there's some musicians I really love working with in L.A. And well, I guess it's because of the pandemic right now that I've been in Taiwan for
0: right, like right.
1: We're strict. You know, I, right. I haven't been able to go anywhere. But yeah, does that answer your question? I, I'm not. I go to
0: the U.S. sometimes. Yeah, not recently And then I guess when you're creating music, like do you sing, uh, you had mentioned different languages before, so do you sing some in English? Do you sing some... I sing
1: uh, half and half, but my original stuff is in English.
0: Is in English?
1: But the cover songs, there's like a split between Mandarin and English. And then on the last record, there was some Japanese as well, but I have not done a lot of Japanese.
0: Yeah. Do you worry about how things perform or I don't know what the right like do you worry about sales or do you you know you talked about commercially viable before so mm-hmm. as an artist right do you try to stay kind of pure within that process and not worry so much or as you're creating something are you really kind of I'm just about what I'm creating and whatever happens happens or do you think of it sometimes in terms of who you're creating it for I think
1: think there's definitely the anxiety of like how this will be received. Right. But I think in the studio there is, you know, for each project there's an ideal sound of what I would like for this to go towards or what I would like for this to sound like. But I haven't always kind of produced my own projects and it seems like when for example like the first few records I my my dad produced them. And I think maybe he has just like a better understanding of what people or the, this this demographic or this audience, what they want to listen to. So I feel like he always kind I feel like he, for him, it seems like he more easily hits the nail on the head as mm. in he gets it. And I think for me, the process is more like what I would like to listen to, but this doesn't always necessarily but- register people right away. Yeah. But I think for me, it, it's much easier to work with when you have an ideal sound and you try to realize that without thinking about, any kind of consequences or.
0: Yeah. In that yeah. lane of being liked or having a positive response, I'm curious from your perspective, just, and especially having been now in this for at least 15 years, like you said, like you've been doing this for a long time now, this evolution of like social media, right? And I think the, just the whole exposure of that and, that immediate feedback or immediate response that people have that maybe in the beginning there's some space between you creating something and it going out in the world and then getting that how has that impacted you is that hard like it you know i just think about the entertainment industry generally and then music it's just harsh right it's a harsh and and then and you are the product right it's like your soul really in terms of you what you're creating and so how has that been for you? Do you have any counsel? If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at com. Complicated
1: feelings. Yeah. I could have, have, let's see, this is a pretty wide scope that I can talk about. I mean, for one, like social media definitely makes me feel anxious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely I will start ruminating about a lot of things. And I think this is, you know, from what I've seen probably happens to a lot of people. I think it just kind of naturally affects human nature that way where you just, you know, you start comparing and you just your your mind goes down this very like critical I'm trying to frame it in a more healthy way, but I'm working on it. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, social media aside, I, I, I feel like, you know, being a musician, one thing you really have to, or being a, an artist or a celebrity, someone in public, you have to be prepared for hate. You have to be prepared for online hate. Mm-hmm. Um, online hate, media hate, people hate. <laughs> uh, I I feel like that was... You have to be pre- pre- prepared for love, but yeah, <laughs> I forget. I forgot to say that. You have to be prepared for love, but you yeah. also have to be prepared for hate. Definitely, I I would feel pretty angry at times that it's kind of like, what did I do? What did I do to you that you have to talk about me or, or look at me in such a scathing way? Right. So, I mean, I... I don't know how true this is for artists or for people, but I think generally, I don't think people want to be hated. Generally, you would hope to make people happy. Right. Or at least, you know, not create something negative. But there's a part of me that feels, in my journey, I feel like I've upset some people or I've I've disappointed my fans, you know, in doing the things that I wanted to do. I, I feel like I've disappointed some fans who you know to this day I still see comments that are like her dad knew what was best for her mm. I see that a lot mm-hmm. so you know it's like like a complicated thing it, things might not always turn out and then there's no perfect way to do it I think
0: yeah you had mentioned it, Paul McCartney and he I heard him in an interview uh, recently yeah. he was on a podcast that I love and if you he was interviewed on Smartless, I don't know if you've heard of that podcast, but it's I don't know. it's three American actors, but and he was talking about fame and they were asking him, like, how are you so normal, right? How have, there's just it's just beyond
1: like such a Zen person.
0: right. and yeah. and they were like, of all people, right? Like that that the Beatles and Beatlemania and, and can really any one human, share that like that experience that paul mccartney has i think is just i I don't know i think it's individual like i don't think there's anything anybody like that maybe in Elvis, like maybe michael jackson right but very few people and he always said he said which i thought was interesting he's like the fame was never real the like i've he's almost created separation between himself and the fame and the popularity and he almost talked about it like who is that guy that they're freaking out about? Or similarly, who is that guy that they're saying hurtful, hateful, thing? you know, it, it's almost like he was able to disassociate in some way.
1: I think, I think that is the mark of an extremely intelligent person <laughs> who, who's very um, savvy and probably, that's probably the attitude that you have to take to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Be able to keep your mental health yeah. in this process. I definitely feel like I buy into it too much sometimes. Like I identify too much with like the love and the hate. Yeah. And because there's a part of me that's like, oh, but didn't don't we connect emotionally? Are, am I not connecting emotionally with the audience? And so whether they, they're very upset or they have like, yeah, these very hurtful, hateful remarks, I feel like it does kind of reflect on, I feel like I'm putting my heart out and then you... Right. It's like trash. Or even if it's like received well clearly that they've imagined someone, you know, that they, they fill in the blanks, you know, for, for a lot of stuff. So I don't know, like maybe I should think of the, what you just told me about Paul McCartney <laughs> a little more and
0: maybe that's like a healthier. I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it seems like even for him, that seems like how, how, do you, how does Paul McCartney even do that? I don't know, like given yeah. his journey. What, if you were to talk about, Just for a couple of minutes, what like what is it that you love about what you do or what are some of the things that you find kind of pinch yourself moments or things that have been a pleasant surprise for you?
1: I think the one thing that has not changed uh, throughout all this is just how much I love being in the studio.
0: Like Mm.
1: It's still amazing to me the process of recording and mixing and putting a song together whether it's like my own project or when I'm a part of someone else's project, it's like hearing a song come together. is just so exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, something like songwriting that to me, at least per- personally right now, I, I, I feel like I've come to, it, it's always really up and down, but right now I'm definitely in like a Valley right now mm-hmm. for when it comes to songwriting. So I'm still figuring that out. As in like, there was a, there was a time where I felt like there was a lot of momentum in writing. And I felt really passionate about it. But right now I'm like, I feel like everything I write I've written already and I hate it, you know. (laughs) So I'm, that's, that's where I'm at there. But Pleasant Surprises, I think one thing that I always felt really miraculous was, like, making the stuff that I wanted to make. Um, I, I felt a lot of resistance but it was like in time I I felt like there were people from different pockets of the world that I would get their message and they'll be like oh I, I love your I love your music like mm-hmm. my original stuff and you know sometimes I would even get fans of the people I idolize for this kind of music and I thought that was truly very special yeah it, it felt like Aha! like, I'm not just crazy. (laughs) Like I, I'm onto something. Yeah. Um, When that happens, I feel like miracles exist. Like things can come true in the best way possible, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think what I love about what you just said, I mean, to do anything for 15 years, a creative pursuit, or, uh, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I talked to people from a lot of different walks of life here. And I think, the sustainability is like, you're not, you know, you can't sustain being at the apex that whole time, right? It's just not, it's not healthy for you. I don't even know if the audience can-
1: Biologically, I think is, even from a biological point of view, I think it's kind of hard because I do feel like, at least for me, things don't feel the same. I don't have the same kind of passion or energy or something. And I, and especially, yeah, like you said, it's like repetitive, the repetition makes it like, how do you always come at something with like a whole new look or a whole right. new approach or a whole perspective. And for me, it is true that with each project, especially when it's an original project, I, I, it's starting to feel a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I've heard, you know, I've talked to different musicians about this. And you know, some say it's natural, some say it's a phase. Mm-hmm. Like you'll, you'll, the pendulum is going to swing to another end again where you start to have another phase of creative output. And it could be a, a different kind of output. But, right. You know, you'll have output.
0: I think, too, so. one thing, because I want to be sensitive to time, but one thing you mentioned mm-hmm. just even before about starting out and feeling like this push pull of like it not being you and and being difficult or whatever you know however you were characterizing that and i think something about this as we've been talking like i feel like that's so important and and a lot of people particularly in your situation i think or even when you're young and you're just emerging and you're starting out and whatever it is that you're trying to do that when you really believe something and you feel that like in your soul that it's wrong or it's it's not what you want to be doing or you need to set a limit or a boundary or, you know, that you can listen to that voice and you mm-hmm. can you can articulate that. And it may, like to your point, you were depressed and it was difficult and challenging. At the same time, it seems like when your company or when other people were finally ready for you to be you, you actually knew who you were because you had to spend some time cultivating that mm-hmm. instead of just sort of handing it over.
1: Yeah, I think that most things in life, if I can speak generally for sure. other people's experiences, yeah a lot of things are blessings in disguise. Right. The so-called like trials and tribulations, you know, it, it does test you. It tests you on what you want and what decision you're going to make in response to this. Yeah. And I am grateful for that period of compression. Mm-hmm. Because after the compression, I felt like it gave me the resistance to truly really craft and condense what I wanted to say, and I think so when I finally had the chance to say it, it was it was like it, it had been formulated or mm-hmm. it had been structured. so I think if it wasn't for that compression, it it might not I might what I want to say might not have that structure. mm mm-hmm. might not be so clear, it might not be so the concept might not be so clear yeah.
0: Do you feel like you're still like misunderstood, or do you feel like there's symbiosis more so now Mm -hmm. with like who you are, who you are out in the world as an artist, like what you represent? Right? Is there? uh, Seems like just based on how you see talked about this trajectory, but do you feel like that?
1: I feel like the kind of the it almost felt like it was general consensus that you know I was like difficult and. I think especially being the daughter of a producer. Right. I think that people like to hate on that. They really <laughs> did. I think that's eased up a lot. And now when I do my own stuff, there is an audience for it. So that's really wonderful. Now it doesn't feel like when I want to do something, I, I have to upset someone. I have to go out of the way to upset someone or make someone feel like... I still hear, you know, those voices, but it, it's like far less. Yeah. I, I think when you keep at something for a long time some people just stop talking because
0: they'll
1: see like oh you're actually serious about it right and they just like i don't know it evokes less hate in them i guess because they're like oh okay well if you're serious about it then all right you do you you know you're not just doing it to to be
0: rebellious or you're not just doing it for whatever thing that's like unlikable Right. Or they, yeah, yeah, there's all these assumptions that are made. And I think in anything, like it's so interesting, people want to rationalize Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: that if you're Mm -hmm. successful, it's it's not because of you or your talent, right? It has to be because of your dad and and those connections. And I think the interesting thing about people and just human nature, it's like if, if people are equally given the same opportunity, why wouldn't you take it? And then it's mm-hmm. what you do with that opportunity, right? To your point around sustainability and like you, you wouldn't be still pr- producing music and being viable, you know, if you weren't talented in your own right and had something to offer. So to your point, I think I love that. Like just by doing, you can kind of shut out the haters and people that are kind of full mm-hmm. of crap, you know? <laughs> um, so so as, as we, as I'm, no, you have probably a million other things to do today. <laughs> I'll just ask you around, you know, you've talked a bit about it. I mean, so openly, if you think about young you, <laughs> like where you are at that starting point and, 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 in the, I think perspective of being able to say that there was those challenges that actually helped you become who you are now, is there, is there any advice that you would give to yourself, you know, to help make that path a little bit easier? I think I would
1: have, said anything to myself yeah i think like feeling it in the dark it was like you know feeling in the dark that made that experience what it
0: was yeah
1: but you know i did so i i mentioned this musician at the start uh his name is roger joseph manning jr very long name um but he gave me he was one of the most like encouraging you know i would say like a teacher an older person At the time, he was like the only person who was, I felt like was very supportive. Because even with my dad, I just felt like he was not happy with how I was reacting to everything. I remember he said to me, he was like, you're famous, like people like you. I don't understand why you're so upset. You know, and then it made me feel like, like, oh, I'm just a rebellious teenager to you. You don't understand what I'm going through. But Roger, he said to me at the time, he said, if you have so much passion and you have like you just feel like it's in your soul, this is what you're meant to do. Maybe this is kind of new agey, I don't know. But he was like, There's no way in the in the universe where someone else won't resonate with that. It just mm-hmm. has to be. And he I think he predicted something. It was true. You know, I, I did feel people responding with that resonance. And it, it was very touching. It's very touching. Even when it happens now, I'm just like, this is incredible. So sorry, I got lost. Where was I? No,
0: I think, no, I think you answered the question. I I think what I love about that is people often know more than they think they do what connects them to, to what they love in life, right? What their passions are. And I think there's all these external influences that are dampening that. Like at a young Mm -hmm. age, it can be your parents. It can be your friends. It can be right. There's all these external influences that I think impact that connection point so the fact that like you started this conversation and talking about how it evokes so much emotion in you listening to music being around music being in the studio that was the same thing 15 years later when you're in the studio that's the same thing that now you're when that is working and it's connecting and it's connected. you know I just think that's the goal like that that if you can find your thing whatever that is, where you're feeling that connection. And I totally agree with you in terms of the universe aspect to it, like that's what's meant to be. And then it manifests even, you know, more connection through that, Mm -hmm. for sure.
1: I suddenly remembered, I forget whose quote this is, but it was just like, you know, the hardest thing is to be yourself in a a world that everyone, where everyone's trying to change you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, I just, yeah,
1: yeah, that's a theme of,
0: you know, (laughs) that I've been experiencing, which is like, yeah, how to be yourself. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful for people to know that we're all still working at that no matter Mm -hmm. our age. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's not just at 15 or 20 or 25 or 30, you know, you you can, if you're, you are open to it, to that growth, I think we're Mm -hmm. always trying to learn and get closer to that.
1: Learning about yourself. Yeah. And maybe kind of also like a psychological sense, like what your impulses mean or your hopes and dreams, your joys and pains. Yeah, Yeah,
0: for sure. Mm -hmm. This has been awesome. And I am so,
1: so glad. Yeah. It wasn't like this, like this rant.
0: (laughs) not at all no i it's fascinating i feel like we could talk it to you forever it's such an interesting perspective and i'm um i'm really thankful for just your honesty and and you're just so open and candid and i really appreciate that
1: it was a very enjoyable interview for me also oh that's great
0: Mm Thank you, Joanna. I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect with you and hear your story from growing up in the US to becoming a global pop star. Your advice, honesty, and detailed experience is so helpful to others that have an interest in pursuing this kind of career. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and thank you to our Relatable community and listeners. We are so thankful for your support and listenership. If you get a moment, please subscribe to the Relatable podcast, rate us, and leave comments. We can be found on your favorite listening platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.